At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. The week before he died, Jesus was on his way into Jerusalem. And as he was walking, he passed by a fig tree. Jesus desired to get some fruit from the fig tree, but when he walked up to the tree, he realized that the tree had no fruit. It wasn't in season. And in Mark chapter 12, where this story recounts, Jesus does something startling in response to the lack of fruit on the tree. He actually curses it, and the tree withers to never produce fruit again. A little while later, Jesus would enter into Jerusalem once again looking for fruit, but this time he wasn't looking for physical fruit but spiritual fruit amongst the people of God. And he headed into the temple. And as he did, instead of finding the fruit of God's kingdom, the fruit that God had called him for, what he found was greed and exploitation, a system that was set up to derive profit from those that would come to worship and would exclude those from participation and prayer in God's house. Jesus likened it to as a den of robbers. And in that moment, like the tree, he brought judgment. He drove out those that would exploit others. He said, my father's house shall be a house of prayer. Two random, two stories, sorry, not random, they're connected in the gospel of Mark, but both point to a deeper reality. And it's simply this, that God desires for his creation and his people to be fruitful. Jesus not only showed this by his actions during his time on earth, but he actually taught this to his disciples as well. In the passage that we're digging in today, we're going to see that fruitfulness for Jesus is incredibly important. We've been in the series for the last few weeks called The Follower's Trail Guide, where we've been looking at Jesus' last teaching with his disciples prior to his death, resurrection, and ascension. And in this teaching, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what will take place after those events happen. And when Jesus ascends to be with the Father and the disciples are left to continue his mission on earth. Jesus begins this section of teaching by comforting his disciples, which is what we've looked at the last couple weeks. He reminds them, though, even though I'm going away, it's it's for your good. I'm going away to prepare a place for you so that you could be with God forever. Not only that, as I go, I'm going to send the helper to you, and he's going to come and help you to fulfill the life that I desire for you to live out, the life that I've been showing you. Now, in the second section of this teaching, which begins in verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus turns his attention from comfort to instruction. He begins to prepare his disciples for that moment and what it will actually look like to be his people when he is not here. And really, a lot of the ways what we're going to see in the weeks ahead, and even today, is Jesus wants to help his disciples know what it looks like to actually be a disciple and how to live that out. And Jesus will remind them this morning in our passage as he begins this exploration about what is at the heart in many ways of our discipleship. In fact, he's already said it proves our discipleship. I don't know if you caught it this morning, but if you would, 
Look at me, look at with me at verse 8 of chapter 15. Jesus says this, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. For Jesus, one of the key aspects of what it meant to actually be a follower of him was that they would have fruitful lives, that they would produce fruit in the life that he was calling them to live. For Jesus, fruit is part and parcel with what it means to actually be his disciples. Now, the natural question in that reality that I'm sure is in their minds and should be in ours is, what does Jesus even mean by the idea of bearing fruit? What image? What is that actually trying to communicate? What's he looking for? And further, if that's what he's looking for, how do I even produce that in my life? Well, that's what we're going to explore in our passage today. And to answer that, we need to kind of go back and follow Jesus' teaching as he starts this second section. Because in it, he wants to show us what the fruit is that he desires to bear, but actually the way in which we can produce that fruit in our lives. I think there's two simple calls out of this passage that will help us follow Jesus' call this morning. The first thing that we see, it comes in the first three verses of this section, and it's simply that you and I need to recognize our purpose. Recognize our purpose. Look again with me at what Jesus says. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus begins this section with a key metaphor that he's going to use throughout our verses today. And the metaphor simply is that he is the vine, the father is the vine dresser, and that you and I are the branches. But in order to understand the fruit that he desires, we need to understand a little bit of the nature of why Jesus is using this metaphor and what he means by this statement. He begins, I am the true vine. Now, this is the completion of seven statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes definitive statements about who he is. He says things like, I am the bread of life. He says, as we looked a few weeks ago, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here, he completes that with the statement, I am the true vine. But what does that mean? Well, Jesus in this statement is actually drawing on a prophetic image uh, from the prophets used in the Hebrew Bible. The idea of the vine was used as an image or metaphor for the nation of Israel and ultimately for its purpose and mission that God had for it. If you read passages like Psalm 80, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 21, Ezekiel 15, and Hosea 10, all of them use the image of the vine as an image for the nation of Israel. Further, it's used to discuss their mission, God's purpose that he wanted to ultimately bring to bear through the nation that he had created. The prophet Isaiah gives us one of the clearest articulations of this image when he writes in Isaiah 27, 6, in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. So the image of vine and fruit and production was an image used of the nation of Israel. When Jesus comes along and says, I am the true vine, what he's claiming is that he, in fact, is actually the true Israel and that he's the one who's come to fulfill their ultimate purpose and mission that God had for them. God has always desired that his people would be fruitful and that they would fill the earth with his glory and the glory of his kingdom. 
We remember from the very beginning when God created the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, he gave them the call to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. Even after that failed and God restarted everything after the flood with Noah, he gave Noah that same command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. When that failed and God had to scatter nations after the Tower of Babel, God came to Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to form a nation out of you that's going to fulfill that original command of filling the earth with, the, with my glory by filling it full of the fruit of my kingdom. He would say things like this to the nation, that Israel was meant to be a light to the nation, that his, God's salvation, may reach to the end of the earth, Isaiah 49, 6. So God's mission was always to fill the earth with his glory, and it was always to come through the fruit of his people. By saying, I am the true vine, Jesus is both declaring that that fruit is no longer going to come ultimately through the nation because of its lack of fruit, but that it is now going to come through him as the one to fulfill God's original purpose for humanity and his original mission of redemption. As Jesus unfolds who he is, he also reminds us of his unique relationship with the Father. While he is the true vine, his Father is the vine dresser. Now, that's not a phrase we use very often, right? When's the last time you used the word vine dresser? Maybe a better word is farmer, right? The image there is someone who cultivates the vineyard, who does the work of caring for the vineyard to make sure that it produces what it is ultimately meant to produce. And Jesus says that the Father, as the vine dresser, works to prune the branches those that don't produce fruit, he takes away. And the fruit that does produce fruit, he prunes so that it may produce more fruit. Here in this moment, we see the mutuality of the mission that exists between the Father and the Son. The Father has always been preparing the vine. And the Son has always been the intended vine through which God's mission would be accomplished. This is the beginning. We then come into this in Jesus' metaphor as the branches. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. And it's at that point in the metaphor that we begin to understand God's purpose for us. Branches exist for one reason in the vineyard, to produce fruit. That is why they are there. They are not the vine. They are not the vine dresser. They are the that which is attached to the vine through which the fruit is to come. The image that Jesus uses as the Father is the Father only reinforces that idea that the whole point of the branch is fruit. It's to produce fruit. That's why it exists. That's its purpose. Imagine with me for a, for a moment that you walked into a vineyard. Maybe you went up north northern Michigan found vineyards there. Maybe you went south, northwest Ohio has some vineyards. Maybe you went out west to California and found vineyards there. And imagine with me that you walked into what you knew to be a vineyard, but that vineyard was completely dead. All the branches were brown, right? There was no fruit, nothing to bear. It was in the middle of season when it's supposed to be blossoming, and it wasn't. You would immediately notice something was wrong, right? You wouldn't walk into that vineyard and turn to your friend and say, man, look at this vineyard. Isn't this thing gorgeous? Isn't this amazing? This is the most beautiful vineyard I've ever seen. This is incredible. Look how brown it is. Look how ugly this looks. I mean, I'm just stirred from my heart at just how bare this vineyard is. No, not at all. 
If you walked into a dead vineyard, the very first thing you would say is something's off. Why? Because you know the vineyard is there to produce fruit. And if it's not producing fruit, then the vineyard isn't living out the purpose that it exists ultimately for. Further, if you or someone you knew was in charge of that sort of vineyard and a good farmer, you would expect them to work to cultivate the vineyard in order to produce the fruit that it was meant to produce. You would expect them to clear out the dead branches. You would expect them to prune the branches so that you could get rid of things that might open it to disease or infestation so that ultimately what would hinder the vine from producing the fruit through the branches would be dealt with so that more fruit could be produced. Ultimately, the image that Jesus uses here helps us to understand our purpose. Jesus is likely traveling with his disciples. We saw previously that he says, rise, go from here, and most think that he's traveling at this point from the upper room, ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane, and it's very likely as he does that, that he would pass by vineyards that would have surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to say, hey, you see all these vineyards? They point to the deeper reality. I'm the vine. My father is the farmer. You are the branches. And fruit is meant to be produced in your life. That's where you're headed. That's going to be your purpose in the season that is to come. And so when we talk about what does it mean to recognize our purpose, I think that's where Jesus is trying to say, hey, you have a purpose. You have a role in God's great mission of redemption. You have something that I want to do in you and through you as my disciples. I'm the vine. I'm the source. You're the branches. But just like God's purpose has always been for his people to produce fruit to his glory, that's your purpose now, renewed and redeemed in me. Therefore, our purpose is to bear fruit. Now, you might still be wondering at that point, well, what is, again, what does that mean? What, what actually does that look like tangibly in my life to produce fruit? I think pastor and missionary Leslie Newbegin gives us one of the most helpful definitions and clearest definitions of, I think, what Jesus means by bearing fruit in this passage. In his commentary on John 15, he says this, the fruit that Jesus is talking about is the life of Jesus himself reproduced in the lives of the disciples in the midst of of the life of the world. Remember, we saw this last week. Jesus comes to them and says, hey, you're going to do the works that I've done. You're going to continue my life now out into the world. That's your purpose. That's what you're going to do. And I'm going to give you a helper to do that. Here, he's reinforcing that. You're going to go and produce fruit. And the fruit that you're going to produce is my life, the life that I've lived, that I've been showing you, is now going to be reproduced in your lives but it's not going to be in one location. It's going to be in the midst of the world to the ends of the earth. That's why he's going to send them on mission to the ends of the earth. So fruit for Jesus is reproducing his life in our life, that the glory of God might be spread in every context across every nation to his glory to the ends of the earth, to fulfill our original purpose. So to bear fruit, then, is to bring the life of Jesus into every sphere of of our lives. That's what fruit is. In a word, it's to be Christ-like. It's to say, how in my life can I show who Jesus is and live as Jesus lived, empowered by his spirit for the sake of God's glory across the earth? Recognizing that our purpose is to bear fruit by reproducing the life of Jesus calls us to evaluate why we do what we do and how we do it. If you want a simple way to come back and recognize your purpose, 
to help you align with Jesus' purpose for your life, one of the easiest questions you can ask is you can look at any sphere of your life and say, if Jesus was going to live through me in that sphere, how would he do it? How would Jesus work my job? How would Jesus interact with my friends? How would Jesus parent my kids? How would Jesus love my spouse? How would Jesus call me to live as a single adult? How would Jesus want me to do this? When you ask that question, now you're moving towards what it means to bear fruit. Now you're recognizing, oh, the purpose of my life isn't for me to just pursue my own interest. It's to model the reality of Christ in the world so that he can be glorified. Now, that's a huge purpose. And most of us at that point recognize, man, I'm far from that. Right? Like, I'm just trying to get out of the bed in the morning and make it through my day without offending God greatly. Like, that's baseline for me. Like, now you're talking about reproducing the life of Jesus. And I imagine the disciples, again, have to feel a little bit that as Jesus gives them this metaphor, they're like, what on earth? Yes, it's a high purpose, but the good news is Jesus has the means for which you can pursue that purpose. And that's essentially what he spends the rest of the passage helping us to see. That, yeah, you're to recognize your purpose, but there's a way in which you can live that out. And it comes right, the key for it becomes right away in verse 4. So he says, already, verse 3, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now he transitions and says, abide in me and I in you. Jesus' reminder is as you recognize your purpose, the second call then is to remain in Jesus. Here, he gives the clear command in the passage. What he said is, this is your reality. You're called to bear fruit. This is how you do it. This is what you are ultimately to pursue. That the key to producing a fruitful life in Christ is to remain in him, and that really is the primary work of disciples of Jesus. If our lives are to produce fruit, then we must remain or we must abide in him. But what does that mean? What is Jesus actually calling us to when he says abide in me? What I think Jesus is calling us to, not to get too technical, but I think it's helpful for you to understand, is that Jesus is calling his disciples to both an objective reality and a subjective pursuit. That's what it means to abide. Let me help you understand that a little bit. And we kind of see it fleshed out in the words that he says. So here's what he says. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. On one sense, Jesus gives them here the objective reality of what it means to be a disciple. If you are to produce the life of God's kingdom and of Christ in your life, then you must be united to the vine. If you are not united to the vine, you cannot produce fruit. You cannot do anything on your own. You have no ability, no strength, no power, no resources to produce the life of the kingdom of God apart from your connection and unity with Jesus. And so in one sense, what he is calling them to and abiding to him is to be connected to the vine to trust in him, receive him by faith, and to be united with him. The disciples have already done this. That's why in verse 3 he says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Jesus has spoken the word of the gospel and the good news of his kingdom to his disciples, and they have trusted that, given their lives to follow it. And Jesus says, you're united to me, right? That, that's the key. You got to be united. You got to abide and remain in me. That's the objective reality. When the gospel is proclaimed and received through faith, we become united to Christ. That was true for them. It is also true for us today. 
When you put your trust in Jesus, when you trust that he died for your sins to pay the penalty you could not pay on your own, when you trust that he rose again conquering Satan, sin, and death, and that he is the true king and will return to set the world back to right, when you trust in that reality, you become united to him. That's why earlier he would say, I'm in you and you in me. Right? There's an abiding aspect to that. We are in him and he is in us. There's a reciprocal relationship. We're the branches He's the vine, and we're connected to him. As Christians, this is our objective reality. If you've never put your faith in Christ, Jesus gives you the clear call. In verse 6, if you don't abide in me, you're thrown away like a branch. Jesus comes looking for fruit, and where there is not fruit, where there is not connection, where there is not abiding, judgment comes at some point. He is clear throughout his teaching on that reality. But, but... Abiding in Jesus is not just an objective reality, it's also a subjective pursuit. The command is something that the disciples are meant to pursue as they live in the world following Jesus' call. So, to abide in Jesus is to become united to him, but then also to pursue a deep connection and relationship with him. That's actually how you produce fruit in your life. You can think of it some ways like a marriage relationship. Right? To abide in a marriage relationship is both an objective reality and it involves a subjective pursuit. When a, when a couple gets married, when they come together, when they exchange vows before God and others, they are objectively united, spiritually and legally. They are now one, is what scripture says. So it's objective. That's what happens in marriage. But we all know the call towards oneness in marriage is not just to have an objective reality, but for there actually to be a subjective pursuit of intimacy, connection, depth of relationship with one another. The objective reality is meant to be lived out in deep pursuit of one another. That's what makes a healthy relationship. If a couple was married but never spent any time together, didn't communicate, completely lived separate however they wanted, never actually engaged or pursued one another, we might say that they're united, but they wouldn't be abiding. They wouldn't be pursuing the objective reality. It's similar for us. You can't say, I'm a Christian, but I do nothing to pursue Jesus. At some point, it questions what that objective reality actually means. So that's where Jesus says, abiding is objective reality. It's something that happens when you put your faith in Christ, but you also pursue that relationship and depth of relationship. Because as you, produce, as you pursue that relationship, it begins to produce within you the life of Christ. We can't produce the life of Christ on our own apart from remaining in him. Jesus is clear on that. That's why he doesn't say, hey, here's your purpose. Now go do, 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 do. He says, here's your purpose. Remain. Abide. Sit with me. Be with me. Come to me. Because as you do that, I will begin to transform you and your life to actually produce the fruit of Christ-likeness in your life. You have to go deep into Christ in order to produce the fruit that he wants us to. And that's what he calls him to. Be connected with me. Now, at this point, you might be actually, well, okay, that's great, but how do I actually do that then? how How do I abide in Jesus? So I get it, that's a reality I need to pursue, that's something I need to go after, but but how does that happen? How do I remain connected to the vine? Again, Jesus gives us, I think, two key ways in this passage for how we remain in him. I I love how he lays this out for them as he prepares them for the life they're going to live. He's like, hey, don't forget this incredible, massive purpose I have for you. 
here's the key. Remain in me. I'm going to do this through you. You don't have to feel the pressure to just figure it out on your own. And then he says, and here's how you can actually remain in me. You see the first way come right away in verse 7. If you abide in me, now note what he says next, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The first place that Jesus points us to for what it looks like to abide in him is by abiding in his word. If we're to produce his fruit, we must be abiding in his word, which ultimately then influences a life of prayer, of communication with him. For Jesus, we cannot reproduce the life of Jesus in our lives apart from abiding in him, which means abiding in his word, which helps us know then how to live in the spheres of our life that he has given to us. We must know his word. Uh, maybe think of it like this, and I think what Jesus is pointing us towards here. So uh, my youngest son uh, just got cast um, about a month or so ago now for a role in the upcoming community production of Newsies. He loves theater. He's all about it. He auditioned. He got the role. It was awesome. We're super excited for him. And uh, as he prepared for that role, right, he went the first day, and the first thing that they give to him is they give him a script. Okay? And what does that script contain? The story, what this is going to be, and the lines for the characters. So what did my son do as soon as he got that script? Well, he went home and he read that thing front to back, right? And he practiced it. And he worked on memorizing his lines and understanding the story and digging into it. And we would have conversations and practice his lines with him to help him times. And times I'd look and say, well, that's not quite the line. This is the line. And he would say, I know, but I want to do this with the character. And we worked through the script because the script gives him the key to how he's supposed to exercise the character. It gives him the story. It gives him the understanding of the character he's meant to play so that when the time comes for him to perform, he knows the character inside and out. He knows what his lines and responsibilities are, and he's able to execute that in performance. In many ways, that's what Jesus is saying of why we need to abide in his word. He's saying, hey, I've given you my word, and my word has the story of what God's doing in the whole world. Not only that, it has specific commands and calls for how you're to live in that world to live out and bear the fruit that I desire to bear in your life. This is the key to how I want you to live in line with my mission while you're on earth. And so if we're to be the followers of Jesus and abide in him in the same way a good actor abides in his script, we need to abide in the word of God. We need to study it and memorize it and learn it, understand its big picture and its small parts. We need to figure out what indicators it gives us for the performance that God calls us to for in our lives so that we can make much of him. So that when we step into these spheres of our life, whether it's our job or our family or whatever it is, we can go, oh, I know how God wants me to act there. I know how God wants me to respond there because I know his word and I follow his word. And if I'm abiding in his word, then I'm abiding in him and therefore I can produce the fruit that God wants to produce in my life. Not only that, his word becomes the foundation for which we engage him in communication and prayer. Jesus has already said this before. He essentially says, hey, if you ask anything in my name, I'm gonna do it. And here he reminds him, if, you're, if my words are in you, ask me. Why? Because if you know my word, you're gonna pray in accordance with my will. Let me teach you a spiritual secret. When you pray in accordance with God's word, it brings power to your prayers. 
Because you now start to pray what God desires over the situation in your life, not just what you desire. And that changes everything. It aligns you with him. It aligns him, you with his purposes. It helps you then move towards producing the fruit God wants to produce in your life. And so Jesus says, you want to remain in me? Remain in my word. Remain in prayer. That's one of the first keys. And if we're to do that, we have to be people of the word and prayer. So if you want to apply what Jesus has to say for you today, here's one simple step you can take. I would encourage you to begin, if you have not begun or done this already, to begin a daily rhythm of reading God's word and praying. Don't, don't make it overly complicated. If this, if this is a new step for you, you don't have to make it overly complicated, right? It's not like, I got to go pray for now, I got to figure out, I don't even know what to do. Try this. Try this week, each day, to find 10 minutes. I think most of us can find 10 minutes in our day. If not, just get off Twitter for 10 minutes, right? And read one chapter of the Gospel of John each day. That's all you have to do. Just start chapter one. It might not even take you five minutes to read it. And then just sit for three minutes and seek to communicate with God in light of what you read. Just talk to him. And listen for a moment. Right? Don't overcomplicate it. It doesn't have to be some highfalutin words. You don't have to get all these things right. Just read and then seek to communicate to God. And try to do that every day this week. Try to remain in his word and prayer every day this week. I guarantee you'll begin to see some changes. I begin you're going to change the way you in which you experience your relationship with God. It will help you remain in Jesus. And you'll begin to see your mind and your heart open to things God wants to do in your life, even that day that you might never have been open to before. It's not overly complicated. Sometimes we make the Christian life overly complicated. Read his word, pray. And then out of that, what Jesus is going to say, seek to love and obey him. That's what he says next. By this my Father is glorified, verse 8, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now we got to pause there. Because that's unbelievable. I don't know if you caught it. Hear it again. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. If you didn't catch it, maybe you're not understanding what Jesus is saying, how the Father has loved me. Remember, he's already said, I and the Father are one. We're talking about the love eternally that the first person of the Godhead, the Father, has had for the second person of the Godhead, the Son. It's a love that's been eternal. From before the foundations of the world, the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. The Father sought to glorify the Son, and the Son seeks to glorify the Father. That the Trinity is this dynamic relationship of love and glorification that has existed outside of time and space and all of creation that brought even creation to bear. That's the sort of love that they have for one another. And Jesus says, in the same way the persons of the Trinity have loved each other, that's how I love you. Now, at some point, you got to step back and be like, what? Like, Jesus loved me with the same eternal, enduring, fierce, passionate, glorifying love that the Father has for the Son. That's how much he loves you and me? Whoa! Man, if I can't wake up every day of my life and rejoice in that, that it isn't based on my perfection, but God loves me because I'm in Christ that totally shifts the entire reality of our lives, of who we are. 
And Jesus says, out of that reality that comes to bear because of his death and resurrection and work and our trust in him and unity with him, he then says, abide in my love. And I love you. Remain in that place. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus has already given us that idea and we unpacked that a little bit last week, but his reminder again is that one of the key things that we work towards is this interconnected reality between the love of God for us and our response to that in obedience. Don't reverse them. Right? Don't, don't get the order confused. In fact, I, I read this this week. New Testament scholar Edward Klink gives us a helpful delineation here when he says, we must be careful not to reverse the order of love and obedience. That is, obedience springs from love and it's a response to love, not the reverse. What Jesus doesn't say is, obey and then I'll love you. What he says is, if you're in me, I already love you. So therefore, obey. You're not trying to earn his love You're seeking to abide in it so that you might experience it in the daily reality of your life. Again, this is where, I've used this before, but this is where I think parenting and children become a helpful illustration for us to to navigate. Right? I love my kids. When my kids disobey me, it's not that I stop loving them. I don't just in that moment be like, I'm done with you kids. Figure it out. No. No, I still love them. But the experience of that love shifts. Now that love has to move towards discipline. Now that love has to move towards correction. Now that love becomes a pruning in which I have to work in them to move them towards maturity. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen, I love you. If you're in me, if you put your faith in me, I love you. Don't doubt that. But the way you remain in my love is through obedience. Because when you disobey, it shifts your experience of my love. It's not that Jesus stops loving you, but it's that you now have to experience the discipline of God. He disciplines those he loves. The correction of God, the movement in your life to bring you back to the place of producing the fruit that he desires to produce in you. See, what Jesus wants us to recognize is that our obedience not only gives us the experience of his love, which is an objective reality because of what he has done for us, but it actually leads us to greater joy for our lives. That's why he says to close this first section, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And I've told you these things of what your purpose is to abide in me through my word and through prayer, to abide in my love through obedience. Why? So that my joy can be in you and that your joy can be full. You see, obedience is a way in which we experience the joy of God in our life. It aligns us to his purposes for us. It allows him to bear the fruit through our life so that as it happens, we find joy in him. You know, I think sometimes obedience gets a bad rap because we feel like it's this begrudging reality that we have to do in spite of our joy, not for it. I remember growing up, I grew up in the church, and I remember growing up, there used to be this old song that we would sing from time to time called Trust and Obey. And the words were, trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I remember growing up as a kid, I couldn't stand that song. Because I had had an immature of what joy was and what joy in God meant. See, I looked out at the world and I thought, oh man, that's what I want. That's what I want to pursue. And God's trying to hold me back from that. 
And so obedience is just this begrudging thing that I have to do to follow God so maybe I won't go to hell when I die. I mean, literally, that's what I thought. So it's like trusting, okay, I guess I got to obey. That's what it means, right? But really, I want to do this. And then at some point in my life, I turn and sought all that. And you know what I found? That stuff didn't bring me joy either. In fact, it was even worse. It crushed me. It didn't fill me with joy and satisfaction. It didn't bring my life the purpose and meaning that I thought it would. If anything, it left me empty and worse off than I was before. And what I realized as God brought me back to himself is obedience wasn't standing in opposition to my joy. Obedience was actually the means to my joy. That God is the only thing that can satisfy. That he's what I'm created for. He's where my purpose is. And that as I trust in him and learn to obey him, I get to experience actually a deep satisfaction and joy that is not determined by the circumstances of life, but is eternal in its origin and will continue eternally into God's kingdom. And I realized, oh, the reason that Jesus calls us to obedience isn't to be a cosmic killjoy, but because he knows it's the way in which we experience the deepest most passionate, most fierce, most incredible, most eternal love that you could ever experience in your life. There is not one thing in creation, not one person in creation that could ever give your heart what God can give you and the sort of love that he has for you in Christ Jesus. And so that's why Jesus steps back and says, abide in me. And as you abide in me, I'm gonna produce that love in your life. I'm going to let it overflow to produce fruit in your life that will make much of me. I will help you rediscover your purpose. And through that, I'm going to fill the whole world with my glory as I fill it with my people. And at that point, we come back to our purpose. 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked by a fig tree on on a hill on his way to Jerusalem looking for fruit. And today, Jesus is still seeking fruit. But this time, it's a different kind. It's the fruit of his followers that abide in him, that fill the earth with the glory of God like the waters cover the sea. I'll leave you with this quote. Edward Quink says, The Christian's purpose is not simply to exist, to find enjoyment in their private spiritual quest or moral program, but to participate in the fruit-bearing task required throughout God's vineyard. The fruit of the Christian is participation in the mission of God through the church and to the world. My prayer is that we would all abide in Jesus through obedience, love, prayer, and his word. That as we follow him as disciples, we would produce the fruit of the kingdom and God would get all the glory. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.